There's a familiar saying out there that goes something like this. You are what you eat. Sometimes there are exaggerations, like in the children's book Pinkalicious, where a little girl turns pink from eating too many pink frosted cupcakes. Or perhaps you had a parent or grandparent who said crazy things like, you'll break out in chocolate chip acne if you don't stop eating the cookie dough. And there's always the occasion for great memes like this one. But obviously the point of the phrase is both a caution and an encouragement. On the one hand, be careful what you put in your body, because it can make you sick or unhealthy or apparently pink. On the other hand, if you want to be healthy, there are some good things that you can eat and drink that will help you achieve your goal. In a similar way, we are what we consume when it comes to media as well. Like media is never just neutral. Whether it's literature or music, film or theater, what we take in has a way of forming what we, what we think about the world, how we see and interpret how we relate to other people. It has a way of normalizing behaviors and shaping uh, our image of what is good and beautiful and what's to be avoided. This Advent season, we are in the midst of a sermon series called Formed by Our Films. In particular, we're looking at some Christmas films that people, at least people in our congregation, according to last year's poll, seem to watch frequently over the holiday season. So last week we explored the themes in the animated classic, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. And this week, we'll be taking a look at the film that was by far the most popular in our poll, um, and that is Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. What I'm hoping to do in this series is to explore media that many of us are already consuming and looking at it through the lens of scripture. Particularly, I'll be focusing on the areas where this film portrays some positive Advent themes and some areas where it deserves some critique. So I'm just going to jump right in. And the first thing I'm going to do is start with some critique right away, partly just to get it out of the way, but mostly to name some things that might or ought to make us uncomfortable as followers of Jesus. And the first point of critique is just to name some of the racist innuendo and assumptions that are just kind of part of the background in the 1940s middle America. So there's this scene early on in the film where George's little brother, Harry, is about to go to his senior prom. And he's joking with the maid, Annie, who happens to be black. And he chases her into the kitchen and playfully sp spanks her on the backside. Now, it's all set in this kind of playfulness and, uh, and it's supposed to just be funny. Um, but it should make us cringe a little bit because one wonders if this would have gone over so well had the maid been an elder white woman. There's this sense that Annie has this nice personality and she's sort of part of the family, but not as dignified or worth as much reverence as a woman, maybe in a different social or ethnic class. Other critics have pointed out that the evil Mr. Potter refers to Italians by racial slurs. And then in the scenes depicting what Pottersville would have looked like if George had never been born, the city is full of jazz clubs where black people are playing music and dancing. And it's almost like, oh, the horror of it. These suggestive scenes have a way of reinforcing negative stereotypes that go against the biblical teaching that all men and women are created in God's image, that all of our elders are worthy of dignity and respect unless they've done something in their character or in their behavior to warrant otherwise. There's also an assumption that singleness, especially for a woman, is about the worst thing that could happen to a person. So when Clarence the Angel is showing George what life would have been like had he not been born, he sees Mary, you know, who, who was his wife, uh, 
But without him being born, she's not married all of a sudden because apparently she couldn't find another man or something. And in the in the scene, she's in her late 20s and she's called an old maid because she hasn't been married. And apparently also without George in her life, she develops a sight problem because now she has glasses that she never had before. And woe upon woe, she's depicted as a lonely librarian. The assumptions do us harm by reinforcing the lie that somehow you're less than whole if you're not engaged in a romantic relationship. As people who seek the, the Jesus um, of Paul and Mary Magdalene and the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, we have a rich tradition that speaks to the fullness of life available to single people, even the exaltation of unmarried people. And we would do well as a church not to forget that. There's plenty of other issues we could explore, like George's statement that if Mary, who is naked behind the shrubbery, had called the police, that they would just believe his side of the story anyway. That's so not the Me Too movement right now, and rightfully so. Or there's the way that alcohol seems to be a crutch for so many characters in this film. I don't know if you picked up on it, but almost every time there's a stressful situation, people are saying, I need a drink, I need a drink. They're all drinking all the time. Other times, it, drunkenness is depicted in this film as just a, as a comic relief. But in fact, it was the hubris and, uh, and the drunken forgetfulness of Uncle Billy who nearly destroyed the family business. Any one of us who has dealt with alcoholism or has loved an alcoholic in our lives knows that drunkenness and alcohol abuse is nothing to be laughed at. But the last problem I'll mention in this sermon about the film is the depiction of angels. It is sad to me how many people draw their view of angels from films like this one rather than the scriptures. I mean, the whole idea of dead people like Clarence turning into angels in the afterlife is completely foreign to scripture, let alone this kind of quasi-ranking system where they have to earn their wings by doing good deeds after they're dead. And then the whole bell ringing stuff is nonsense. Sorry, kids, I just need to do my job and let you know that that's not really how it is. But there is a silver lining to all this depiction of God and the angels in the film. I think that these types of scenes in film encourage us to consider the unseen world as one that interacts with our own world. So God and the heavenly host may not send an old man in a strange blouse. And by the way, I'm still wondering about Clarence and his uns. Like, does he tuck that blouse thing into his trousers? I just have so many questions about the practicality of those undergarments. Anyway, God may not answer our prayers by sending a strange old man, but he does hear us when we pray. And the scriptures tell us that the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. I love how in this film, when their friend George is in trouble, not only the family, but the community express their care and concern by turning to prayer. You know, when we see Jesus, the incarnate God, not only teaching us to pray, but also engaging in prayer himself, then we know that this film, It's a Wonderful Life, is on solid ground when turning to God in times of trouble. Another area where this film encourages us to consider the world behind the physical world or behind the veil of outward appearances is in the area of spiritual discernment. The character of Henry Potter, not Harry Potter, Henry Potter, the guy in the wheelchair, that character is almost of unbelievable evil. He's like Ebenezer Scrooge without the redemption story. So there's this scene where he invites George Bailey into his office. 
Now he's seated above George. He's got this little low chair for George, who's a much taller man than him. He's got a portrait of himself hanging in his office. He has this metal skull on a chain on his desk, and this speechless aide who stands next to him, who's like pale and deathly looking. And then, just like the Satan, Potter flatters George and makes him offers of riches and worldly security. And again, like the Satan, Potter then plays on all of George's insecurities. He names the things that George doesn't have, the things that he can't afford, the things that he can't buy his wife, and the frustration of running a hand-to-mouth business. But he conveniently leaves out the many great things that George does have in his life, like love and friends and respect, genuine kindness and a vocation that actually matters. George has a vital role in his community. But the temptation is real, and you can just sense it. It's so tempting to just take the offer. And then George shakes hands with old Mr. Potter. And who knows like what happened? I imagine they were cold, greasy, slimy hands. Maybe it was static electricity. Maybe it was just the touch of a man who caused so much suffering to so many people. But George has this moment of spiritual sobriety. And he sees what's going on. And he comes to understand that this isn't just an opportunity to get a promotion in life. This is a transaction that would cost his very soul and would damage his whole community. During this Advent season, you and I are called to be sober about the decisions that we make, like where we invest our lives, where we invest our dreaming, our time, and our money. The world is always vying for our attention, to dilute us from what's important, to make us all about the things that will just try and make us feel better. Ads on TV want to play on our insecurities and make us feel like we don't have enough. It's just like uh, the evil one in the Garden of Eden who focused Adam and Eve on the one fruit that they couldn't have while neglecting to mention that the whole rest of the garden was already theirs. Friends, this is just an encouragement for all of us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who has given us all good things. Let's focus on being thankful for every gift rather than despairing about what others say will make us happy. Well, now I want to get to what I think is the media part of the story. It's the theme that runs from beginning to end, and it is this. There is a conflict within George Bailey. And on the one hand, he's got this wanderlust that he just wants to get out out of Bedford Falls and go explore. And on the other hand is the tension of seeing what and accepting what he already has. Even as a boy, George Bailey has his eyes set on adventure and travel and exploration. All good things, by the way. I love a good trip. And later on in life, George declares that he wants to build things, big buildings and airports and bridges. And again, those are all good things, like how the world needs passionate and compassionate designers of cities and public works. But one gets the sense that George's ambition is driving him more than his concern for the common good. He wants to get out of, in his words, the shabby office that is what his father works in. He wants to leave the crummy little town of Bedford Falls behind. He doesn't want to have to squabble over saving a few cents on a few feet of pipe like his father does. George wants to be a bigger man on a bigger stage. 
Earlier this year, I watched the documentary on Michael Jordan, arguably the GOAT of professional basketball. But it struck me how much being the greatest at a game cost him in his real-life relationships. And time will tell if it cost him in his legacy overall. The success at all costs, which is such a popular mantra in our popular culture, you know, that rarely comes off so luxurious and glamorous in real life. George Bailey is so focused on his ambition that he fails to see what is right in front of him, not least the commitment and love of Mary. He's so blind that he's having the night of his life with Mary on this date, and then he spouts off right in front of her, I know exactly what I'm doing tomorrow, and the next week, and the next year. And in all of his declarations about the future, he's left no room in his life for the gift that was right in front of him. And it reminds me a lot of James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, that says, Look here, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We'll do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we'll live and do this or that. Otherwise, you're boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. If the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that making your plans go ahead, but be sure to remember that you're not God. We are all submitted to powers greater than our own, whether we recognize it or not. The pandemic, I think, is just making us feel that reality that has always existed. Thankfully, the God of the universe isn't too self-important, isn't too ambitious to interact with us. In fact, Jesus loved us so much that he came to the backwater town of Bethlehem, was born in a shabby little stable to an unwed couple who were part of a conquered nation. In the glorious prologue of John, which is a classic Advent text, we read, The Word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, This is the one I was talking about when I said, Someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. From his abundance we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is himself God, is near the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to come and dwell among us. Compared to the glories of heaven, coming to the fallen earth must be a lot like staying in Bedford Falls. Now, one of the most popular takes on It's a Wonderful Life is to see George Bailey as a sort of Christ figure. Time after time, he lays down his life for other people. He risks his life in the icy waters to save his little brother. He risks disobeying his boss, the pharmacist, when he sees a mistake in a prescription that could have killed a client. He puts off his gap year adventures to cover his father who had a stroke. He lets his little brother go to college while agreeing to keep the buildings and loans office afloat. And he sacrifices his own honeymoon money to guarantee the debts of his clients. George Bailey is a man who served through sacrifice. 
And when he's willing to make the ultimate sacrifice in order to save his family from financial ruin, the angel shows him that his life of sacrifices has made the lives of everyone else around him so much richer and better. That's the feel-good moment of the film. Just look at all the ways that your life touches other people. Just look at the way that the life invested in community and in service matters. How integrity in the small things make a huge impact on whole lives and societies. How the life of one person can truly change people's lives. It's all true, and it all sounds good, and that is where Hollywood leaves this story. It's a nice story. But it begs the question, what about the rest of us who are not quite like George Bailey? What about those of us who would feel ashamed if an angel took us to look into our past? What is the message to those who have hurt people in their past rather than helped them every time? What about those whose courage has failed them and they feel great shame about it? Or those who don't have a solid marriage or kids to come home to who love them? Or a whole community of people who pray for them? Or a guardian angel for heaven's sake? I don't care about the blouse or not, like at least he had an angel. What about those people who see it's a wonderful life and feel that, you know, if they're being honest, they would have taken Potter's deal or they would have left town a long time ago or any number of more realistic choices? Advent invites us to take a good hard look in the mirror and to come face to face with the fact that we aren't perfect. It's not that we're just a little bit off, but with some positive thinking, we could get on the right track again. The good news that Advent points toward is that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us because we aren't as good as George Bailey. Jesus came not to just set us a little bit straight. He came to rescue us. In fact, I would argue that George Bailey isn't as good of a man as we often make him out to be. In most of his sacrifices throughout the film, he's sort of angry and bitter. There's one scene when his brother comes home. He comes home married. He's supposed to take over the family business. And George is suddenly realizing that he's going to be stuck with this building and loans company. And the little brother says, hey, where's mom? And George Riley says, she's home filling, killing the fattened calf. You know, just like the older son in the prodigal son story, George is a little bit miffed that he keeps taking on all of this responsibility. There's a scene when he blows up at Mary, the love of his life. And he says, I want to do what I want to do. And that's the reality, isn't it? The real issue is not that we're just a little bit sinful or selfish by a few degrees. The reality is that deep down, we want to do what we want to do. We want to be autonomous. And thankfully, the call of the sermon, at least, and I think the film, isn't to be or isn't to try and be as good as George Bailey. But I think it's to be as desperate as George Bailey. And I love the scene where he prays. He's in the bar and he prays, Dear God, I have never been a praying man, but I am at the end of my rope. That is the sort of person that Jesus can save. That is just the sort of attitude that Jesus can work with. And yes, it is a wonderful life. It is a wonderful life we've been given. It's a gift. But especially because all lives can be made new 
in Christ. And that is such good news.